I've been told that faith is like a toothbrush. Everybody should have it. You should use it routinely. But it's never wise to try to borrow somebody else's. The story of Gideon is a story of the growth of his faith. In the book of Judges, the story of Gideon is significant. In fact, he is the judge that has the most scripture space devoted to him. Let's put this in context. There's another judge by the name of Shamgar. He gets one verse. Gideon, who's a judge, he gets 100 verses. So the author of the text, God himself, said that this story is a significant story. So this morning, I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to Judges chapter 7. I want to interrupt the story in mid uh, of its telling. I want us to read chapter 7 in its entirety, but realize that the story of Gideon starts in chapter 6. It doesn't end until chapter 8. But we're going to take a look right in the middle of Judges chapter 7, verses 1 to 25. If you have your Bible, I invite you to uh, turn there. And once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Early in the morning, Jarub Baal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moray. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water. I will sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told them, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. And 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths and all the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that, I, that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. And during the night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are still afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, afterward you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Purah, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands, dividing the 300 men into three companies. Of, uh, three companies. He placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. 
When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me uh, blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke their jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed their jars, grasping the torches in their left hand and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the three hundred trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Bet Shetah towards Zarah, as far as the border of Abel Meholeh near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out. They pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, seize uh, the waters of the Jordan ahead of them, as far as Bet Parah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out. They took the waters of the Jordan as far as Bet Barah. And they also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. The story of Gideon is rather lengthy, the story of Gideon is rather elaborate. But the story of Gideon is a story that tracks the faith of this one servant. It all starts in Judges chapter 7 with familiar words. Then Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In response to their disobedience, God raised up the Midianites. And for seven years, the Midianites ravaged and ruined the land. They plundered and plowed through all the crops. They stole the food of the Israelites for seven years. They took all their sheep and their donkeys and their camels and their cattle. They took everything. This was a downturned economy. This was an economy worse than in recession of two consecutive quarters with negative GDP growth. I mean, this is a negative downturned economy. For seven long years, the Israelites suffered under the hand of the Midianites. For seven years. Eventually, God raised up a prophet. Now, prophets were still being employed even during the days of, days of Judges. And the prophet of Judges chapter 6 is anonymous. He's not named. He comes and he speaks against Israel. He says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I delivered your forefathers from the land of Egypt. I brought you to this land. I evicted all of the inhabitants. And I told you, do not worship their false gods. But you would not listen to me. What you next expect is a word of condemnation from that prophet. But instead, the the scene shifts. When you get to uh, Judges chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, this is what you read. The angel of the Lord appeared under a tree that belonged to Joash. His son was there, Gideon. And the son was threshing his wheat in a wine press. And the angel of the Lord said to Gideon, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now those verses are jam-packed. Let's take a few moments and try to unpack it. It says that the angel of the Lord appeared. It's not the first time that we read that phrase, the angel of the Lord. 
In fact, the angel of the Lord appears numerous times throughout the Old Testament. In a place like Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord appeared on Mount Moriah, telling Abraham, now I know that you will not withhold anything from the Lord, not even your one precious son, Isaac. So take this ram that's caught in the thicket, sacrifice it in place of your one and only son. The angel of the Lord appeared in Exodus chapter 3. It was there that Moses was on the backside of Mount Horeb. He was minding his own business. He was watching the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. And all of a sudden, there was a bush that was on fire but not being consumed. A voice spoke from within that blaze. And we are told that it was the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord appears again in 2 Samuel chapter 24 when a plague comes against the people in the days of David. It is the angel of the Lord that says enough is enough. Now every time I've described this angel as the angel of the Lord, who is this angel. I believe that when the Bible speaks of the angel of the Lord, it's speaking of Jesus. I think that Jesus appeared in Genesis 22, that Jesus was the one who was in the burning bush of Exodus chapter 3. Jesus was the one that stopped the plague during the days of David in 2 Samuel chapter 24. The most convincing argument for that is that after the incarnation of Christ, you never read the angel of the Lord. In the New Testament, you'll read of angels. You'll read of angels from the Lord. You'll read of an angel, but never do you read the definitive word, the, the angel of the Lord. I think every time it appears uh, pre-incarnation, it is Jesus the Christ, because you and I both know that Jesus is not a creation of God that somehow appeared some 2,000 years ago as he came through the birth canal of a virgin girl born in a Bethlehem barn. No, Jesus is co-eternal, co-equal God. He is very God and very human. So I think that the angel of the Lord are pre-incarnate, appearances, visions of none other than Jesus. Now, why is that significant? Because in this moment of the story of Gideon, when you expect condemnation, Christ appears. That's not just true of Gideon's story. That's true of my story. It's true of your story. In that moment, when condemnation should strike against you, Christ appears Because Christ has a knack of taking our condemnation upon himself. We should have been trashed, but in Christ we're treasured. We should have been slaughtered, but in Christ we've been saved. We should have been killed, but in Christ we are called. We should have been forgotten, but in Christ we are forgiven. At the moment when we deserve condemnation, it is Christ who takes our place. It is Christ that takes all the condemnation for us. He shows up right when we need him the most. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for all who are in Christ Jesus. I think that in this moment, the angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ. And he appears to a farmer. He appears to a redneck son of Joash. He appears to Gideon. Gideon is a nobody by his own admission. He says, my family is the weakest in the clan of Manasseh, and I am the weakest, the smallest in my own family. He's a nobody of nobodies. And the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. Gideon is threshing wheat 
in a wine press. Why is that? You normally don't thresh wheat in a wine press. You thresh wheat on a threshing floor, which usually is on a hill, so you can be aided by the wind that will help you separate the wheat from the chaff. Oh, but if he was on the hill, the Midianites would see him. And if he was threshing wheat on the threshing floor of the hill, the Midianites would come and they would seize him and seize all of his wheat. So he went down into the wine press, this down into this place of, of pain and punishment, down into this shelter and protection. And there in the wine press, the place where grapes were squashed, grapes were squeezed so that wine could be produced. In this place of torture, that's where Gideon finds himself. And God knew exactly where Gideon was. Somebody needs to hear that today. That you may find yourself in the midst of your own wine press. You may find yourself in the midst of, of catastrophe and chaos and sickness and sadness and pain and problems. And you feel yourself being squeezed all because you don't want the out culture outside to see you. And, and here you are in that wine press and God's gaze does not escape you. God knows who you are, how you are, and where you are. God showed up. He went down into the wine press with Gideon, and he said to him, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior? That's the phrase? That's the statement? Gideon doesn't feel like a mighty warrior. He feels weak. He feels wimpy. He feels hopeless. He feels helpless. He feels doomed. He feels despair. Have you ever felt like Gideon? You know what that feels like? I mean, you think to yourself, I, I can't do anything right. I can't do anything well. Everything around me is falling apart. Life is chaotic. Everything's confusing. And here I am in the midst of this wine press just trying to thresh out some wheat. And the Lord comes and says, the Lord is with you, oh mighty warrior. I'm going to give you three takeaways this morning. And here comes the first one. That God calls you by what you will be, not necessarily who you are. God has the ability to see what you will be. Gideon will become a mighty warrior. He's not in this moment. He doesn't feel like a mighty warrior. He doesn't act like a mighty warrior. He doesn't think like a mighty warrior. Not in Judges chapter 6. But God doesn't call him by what he is in that moment. He calls him by what he will be. You will be a mighty warrior. For I will use you to liberate the Israelites out of the hand of the Midianites. The Lord is with you. Before he tells Gideon what to do, how to do it, when to do it, and where to do it, he just simply reminds him, I will be with you. The greatest promise in all the Bible is God's promise of presence in your life. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is spoken at least 30 times throughout the scripture. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will always be with you. I will never abandon you. God promises you that he will always accompany you. He will never leave you. Not even in the midst of a seven-year drought. Not even in the midst of seven years of being overtaken by the Midianites. Not even in the midst of, 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 of painstaking poverty. Not even in these conditions. The Lord is reminding him, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I, the Lord, am with you, O mighty warrior. 
you are going to be used by God to liberate the Israelites from the hand of the Midianites. Gideon responds and he says, um, I, I would like to have a sign. Uh, I'd like to know for sure that you really know what you're talking about. Uh, can, can, can you give me a sign? So the angel of the Lord says, well, just, just uh, yeah, make a sacrifice. So the angel was so patient, he waited for Gideon to prepare a sacrifice. Do you know how long this takes? This is hours upon hours. It's not like going to a one-hour worship service. This is hour upon hour. He's got to go get the, the animal. He's got to prepare the animal. He's got to slaughter the animal. He's got to get it ready for sacrifice. He's got to bake the bread, the unleavened bread. He's got to bring the broth that everything was cooked in. He brings it out. This is a multi-hour festivity. It's a multi-hour occasion. He brings it. The angel of the Lord says, okay, put everything on this rock. He puts the animal there. He puts the bread of unleavened bread there. He pours the broth on it. The angel of the Lord takes his staff, and with the tip of the staff, he touches the rock, and immediately fire comes from the rock and consumes the entire sacrifice. And Gideon says, oh, I'm in the presence of God Almighty. This is awesome. This is great. So God, you really, you really are the Lord. You are the Lord speaking to me. And the Lord says, yes, and I've got this assignment for you. You are going to liberate the Israelites from the Midianites. But first tonight, I need you to go and I need you to tear down your father's altar to Baal. See, your father knew that Yahweh the Lord liberated the forefathers. But now the Israelites felt abandoned by God, so they were going to abandon God. So they were beginning to worship Baal. In fact, Joash, the father of Gideon, had constructed an Asherah pole right beside the altar. An Asherah pole was a place where sexual perversion was performed in the hopes of making the family and the crops and the livestock fertile. Ungodly things, graphic things were done around the Asherah pole. And the Lord said to Gideon, I, I want you to tear down the altar to Baal. It's your daddy's sin and you've got to tear it down. And you've got to take down the Asherah pole. And with the wood, I want you to construct an altar to me. I want you to take one of the few bulls that your father has left. I want you to sacrifice that to me and worship. And Gideon thought to himself, if they know I'm doing this, they'll kill me. I mean, I'm the weakest in my family. I mean, my tribe is not very well known. And everybody in my clan, everybody in my tribe, when they hear that I've done this, they will take my life. But the Lord says, I am with you. I'm with you. I've got this. It's going to be all right. So Gideon goes under the cover of night. And he tears down the altar to Baal. He tears down the Asherah pole. He takes one of the few uh, Cattle that are left. Keep in mind, this is in the midst of a famine. It's in the midst of, of tremendous uh, uh, economic difficulties where everything's being stolen, raided, and, and ravaged. And he takes one of those that are still left and he sacrifices it unto the Lord. You know, sometimes there's somebody listening to my voice today. And, and you need to break the cycle of sin that's been generational in your family. I do believe that sin is generational. I believe that some sin you learned 
from your mom and your dad, from your grandparents. I think that some people use it as an excuse. They say, I can't help the fact I have an anger problem. So did my father. You've got to break the altar of your dad. You've got to break the altar of Baal that your ancestors have set up. Some people say, well, I can't control, I can't help the fact that I'm a control freak. My parents were control freaks. No, you've got to break the cycle of sin in your generation. I even think that sexual sin is generational. I think that not all the time, but I think many times that the sexual sin and promiscuity is passed on from one generation to the next generation to the next generation, and there's somebody here, and you need to break the cycle of sin that's been going on for multiple generations in your life. Today, you need to tear down the altar to Baal. You need to cut down the Asherah pole. You need to use it and glorify the Lord with it. You need to say, Lord, I'm going to follow you and you alone. Gideon does this. He goes in under the cover of night. He just destroys the altar of Baal. He cuts down the Asherah pole. He gives a a worship service, builds an altar under the Lord, and the next day, everybody is livid. They form an investigative party. That investigative team searches, and they find out it's Gideon. And they say to Joash, you bring your son out here because we want to kill him for Baal's sake. And Joash, who's probably not the best dad in the world, he says, hey, you don't have to defend Baal. If Baal wants to kill my son, he'll do it himself. So now everybody's against Gideon. But the Lord is with Gideon. The Lord is still with him. In fact, you get towards the end of chapter 6, and the Lord says, okay, now's the time for you to amass an army. They will follow you. You amass an army, go against the Midianites. Now you expect for Gideon to do it, right? I mean, after all, the Lord has proven himself time and time again to be faithful. But instead, Gideon throws out the fleece. Have you ever heard that phrase, throwing out the fleece? It comes from right here in Judges chapter 6. It's what Gideon does. Fleece is the coat of a sheep. And so what Gideon said was, uh, Lord, if... If you really want me to do this, if you really want me to go against the Midianites, then I'm going to throw out this fleece tonight. And tomorrow morning, if the fleece is wet with dew, but the ground around it is dry, I'll know it's you. And I'll do it. And I'll follow. And I'll obey. Lord, okay. So the next morning he wakes up. There's so much dew in the fleece when he wrings it out. The water fills a bowl, and around the fleece on the ground, it is completely dry. Now, what do you expect Gideon to do? You expect him to say, whoa, I'm going against the Midianites. Charge. Let's go move full speed ahead. But instead, he goes, hey, uh, excuse me. Uh, can we do this again? Uh, can, but this time, uh, Lord, if it's okay, don't, don't be angry with me. But this time, can we just reverse it so that the fleece is dry? And the ground around it is wet. Because I promise, Lord, I promise, if you do it for me again, if you do it this time, then I'll know. I'll really, really, really know that you want me to go against the Midianites. So God does. The next day, Gideon wakes up. The fleece is dry as a bone. The ground around it is soaked with dew. Now, before we move ahead, let's speak just a moment about throwing out the fleece. I've been raised in church and I've heard that phrase 
in order for me to discern the will of God, I'm going to throw out the fleece. I'm going to set up a parameter. I'm going to ask God to do something visible to show me whether he wants me to do something or doesn't want me to do something. And this morning, I, I would caution you against regularly, routinely throwing out the fleece. People have done this all my life. In fact, there was a lady at another church, and this is what she told me. She said, if, if my college team wins on Saturday, I'll be in church on Sunday. But if my college team doesn't win on Saturday, then I won't be at church on Sunday. Now, when she first told me that, I laughed. And then it kind of melted away because I knew she was serious. Now, that's a fleece, not a very good one. But it is a fleece. It's a parameter that she set up. Lord, if my team wins on Saturday, then that will be proof to me that you want me in church on Sunday. But if my team doesn't win on Saturday, then it's proof that you don't want me in church on Sunday. The problem is God has already given his word. Don't neglect the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But once again, God had already given Gideon the word, you will be victorious over the Midianites. And yet even still, Gideon said, let me throw out the fleece. I remember there was another man who uh, told me several years ago, it was around Christmas time. He said, you know, look, if, if I'm driving around the mall at Christmas and I get a really good parking space, then I'll know that God wants me to put some money in the Salvation Army kettle. But if I don't get a good parking space, I don't care how much they ring that bell, I am not putting money in that kettle. Now, that's a fleece. It's not a very good one, but it is a fleece. But the problem is that God had already told that man, be generous with all your resources. Give generously to the church. Give generously even beyond the church. So he had a word from God already. He didn't need a driving parking space to open up in order for him to be generous towards those in need. But once again, Gideon was the same way. He already had a word from God. He didn't need for God to operate or force God to operate under this fleece parameter. Now, if you think that I'm uh, being a little holier than thou, let me tell you another story that will prove otherwise. When I was about 12, 13 years old, um, I played a lot of baseball growing up. I mean, I, I played baseball uh, sometimes year-round. I uh, played uh, every summer and many times in the spring and the fall. And so I, I played a lot of baseball. It didn't mean I was good at it. It just meant that I liked the game of baseball. And so i play it. Many times my dad was my coach. And I would always get nervous before the game. That's just kind of the way I'm wired. I've always been kind of an anxious guy. And um, for, for all the baseball games, even up through high school, I, I would get nervous. When I was about 12, 13 years old, I remember that we were driving to the park where the baseball game was going to take place. And it was not far from the house, but in order to get there, you had to go through downtown of the little community that I lived in. And so while my dad, my coach, was driving, I was sitting in the passenger seat, and I was throwing out a fleece. I said, Lord, if we hit all the green lights in downtown, then I know I'll have a good baseball game. And for me, a good baseball game was going four for four, all right? That was a good baseball game. 
And so if we hit all the green lights, I would, I would get to the park and I would think, all right, I'm, I'm going to play well today. I'm going to scoop everything up at first base. Nothing's going to get past me. Uh, I'm going to go four for four. I'm going to have a phenomenal game. If for some reason we got stopped by one of those traffic lights, I thought to myself, well, something's going to happen. It's not going to be a good game. Because clearly, if God wanted me to have a good game, I would have hit all, we would have hit all the green lights. And then, if we ever got stopped by the train before we got to the traffic light, I think to myself, Dad, just go ahead and park it. Just go ahead and reverse it. Go ahead and go back home because something really bad is going to happen today. I was throwing out the fleece. Now, there were times, a few times, when I had a really good game and I went four for four. But there were some times when we hit all the green lights and I didn't go four for four. I went 0 for four with two errors. And I thought to myself, what happened here? The traffic light let me down. No, the inability was not with the traffic light. The inability was with my skill to hit a curveball. Couldn't do it, struck out. But I was throwing out the fleece. I have a friend to this day, he throws out the fleece all the time. He and I are close enough that we can talk about it. I remember one time I talked with him, and I'll give a for example. He said to me, I, I have set a dollar amount because I want to buy this vehicle. And if it is $1 more than that amount, that's God telling me don't buy it. If it's that amount or less, it's God telling me you need to buy that vehicle. And I felt close enough to him because, to be honest with you, my struggle with throwing out the fleece is how do you know the parameters are godly? How do you know if the parameters you set up are godly or selfish? So I asked him, I said, how do you know? How did you determine that number? His response, God told me. Okay, all right. How do you know that God told you that number versus you really wanting to buy this vehicle so you set an arbitrary number that you know you're going to come under in order to buy the car and you'll walk away thinking to yourself, God wants me to buy the car because of this arbitrary number that I set. He looked at me as if I slapped him across the face. He looked at me as if I offended him or if I had three eyeballs or if I fell off of Mars. And he looked at me and said, and you call yourself a preacher. I said, yeah, I, I, yeah. You, can't you tell the difference between God's voice and your voice? Ooh, I kind of wanted to crawl under the table, right? But then later on, because all good comments come to you later on, then later on, I thought to myself, why didn't I just, then why is God playing games with you? If he wants you to buy the vehicle, why don't he just tell you, buy the vehicle? If he don't want you to buy the vehicle, just say, don't buy the vehicle, regardless of the price. Why is he playing around with you? That's what I would have said. But I didn't think of it in time. Throwing out the fleece has less to do with your ability to discern the will of God. It has more to do with showing you the character of God. God is patient with Gideon. God is so patient. Jesus is so tender towards Gideon. 
He doesn't chastise him. He doesn't blast him. He doesn't correct him. He doesn't say, Gideon, I've already given you four signs. Why do you want another sign? He doesn't blast him. He just continues to be tender towards him. He knows Gideon is going to be a mighty warrior. It's going to take all this stuff, all this junk to make him a mighty warrior. There are many times in my life when God puts up with my junk because he knows who I will be, not who I currently am. And he is patient with me. He is tender with me. And not just with me, not just with Gideon, but with you as well. Because dads, let me ask you this. Do you chastise your four-year-old son because he's afraid of the neighborhood bulldog? The answer is no. No, what you do is you walk with that four-year-old son. And when you get to the neighborhood dog that scares your son, you say to him, don't you worry about it. That dog's not going to get to you because it's got to get through me first. You're okay. Let's walk through this. I'll accompany you through this. And I'll prove to you it's okay. I've got it. I think that's what God is doing with Gideon. I think that's what God has done in my life time and time again. He puts up with some of my shenanigans. He puts up with Gideon's shenanigans. He puts up with throwing out the fleece not once or twice. He puts up with asking for sign upon sign. He puts up with that stuff just because God knows, Gideon, you're going to be a mighty warrior. You're not yet, but you're going to be. And I'm going to be with you every step of the way. There's somebody this morning who needs to know that God is going to be with you every step of the way. He knows your final destination before you make your first step forward. God knows who you will be even greater than who you currently are. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. When you get to chapter 7, as the curtain lifts, Gideon is finally ready to go against the Midianites. He's amassed the army. He's got some 32,000 soldiers. That sounds pretty large, doesn't it? Until you read in chapter 8 that the enemy, the Midianites, they have 135,000 soldiers. They have so many camel, you can't even count them. It's like sand on the seashore. When the army moves, it looks like locust flying. At the very outset, Gideon is outnumbered four times. He's got 32,000. He's going up against 135,000. But Gideon is confident. God is with me. We've got this. And the Lord says to Gideon, Gideon, you've got too many men. Because if you are victorious with 32,000, Israel will think she was saved by her own strength. you got too many men. So this is what I want you to do. Gather the 32,000. If any of them have an inkling of fear, they need to pack it up and go home. And Gideon thought to himself, that's not going to be a problem. I mean, my men are macho men. There's no way they are with me. There's no way they're going to abandon me. They're going to be strong with me. So he gets everybody together. He says, guys, I know this is going to sound silly, but this is what God has said. God has said we have a few too many people. So instead of 32,000, he wants us to have less than 32,000 to go into the Midianites. So here is what God says. If you are remotely fearful for the battle, 
go on home. <laughs> 22,000 left. That's worse than COVID numbers, right? I mean, that's worse than what COVID did to the church, right? I mean, 22,000 out of 32,000 up and left, leaving him with 10,000 soldiers. He thought to himself, God, what are you doing? What? I had 32,000. That's like, they have four times more than I do. Now I've got 10,000. That's like, they've got 13 times more than I do. God, what are you doing? And the Lord said, Gideon, you still have too many. 10,000 is too many. Yeah, 10,000 is too many. I tell you what, go down to the stream. Tell everybody to get a drink of water. By them drinking water, I will sift through the ones that are with you and the ones that are not with you. The ones I tell you are with you, stay with you. The ones that say are not with you, they are not with you. They need to go home. Understand? Yes, sir. Understood. So he gets the 10,000 men. He lines them up along the stream, and he says, guys, get a drink of water. And God says to Gideon, uh, the ones that lap the water like a dog, they scoop it in their hands, they raise it to their mouth, and they lap the water like a dog drinks water. Those are the ones that are going to stay with you. The ones who get down on all fours, they're kneeling, their head is down into the river basin, and they drink the water, gulp, gulp, gulp. Those are the ones that go home. Gideon said, okay, that sounds weird, but all right. There were 300 lappers. There were 9,700 kneelers. God sent the kneelers home. Now, I would have thought that God preferred kneeling versus lapping, right? But not in this story. God didn't want the kneelers. God wanted the lappers. Only 300 scooped the water and lapped it like a dog. Friends, I don't have the foggiest clue as why God prefers lappers over kneelers. I don't have a clue. I don't know. Some preachers have tried to explain. They say, well, the reason God preferred that is because those who lapped, at least they were able to look up and see if the enemy was coming at them while they were taking a drink of water. But the kneelers... They're on all fours. Their head is down. Their mouth is in the river. It is gulping the water. The enemy could come, knock them on the head, and they would never know until they're completely destroyed. Maybe that's true. I don't know. But this much I do know. God was stacking the odds against himself. Here comes the second takeaway. According to this story, salvation belongs to our God. Salvation belongs to our God. The Lord said, if you got 32,000, Israel will think she was saved by her own strength. Did you hear that phrase? Saved by her own strength. You're not saved by your own strength. Salvation belongs fully, freely, forever to our God. Salvation belongs to God. He's the one who made you. He's the one who saves you. He's the one who redeems you. He's the one who sustains you. He's the one that glorifies you. He's the one that supplies all your needs. Salvation belongs to our God. I've got some Bible preaching friends, and they'll say it like this. They'll say, well, God voted for my salvation. The devil voted for my condemnation, and I broke the tie. I understand why they say it, but I don't exactly agree with it because God and the devil are not equal in their vote. 
God has a greater vote than anybody in the entire equation. If God is for you, who can be against you? It is God who gives you your salvation. It is God who sustains it. Now, you have to willfully respond. You have to voluntarily respond. You have to fully respond. But it is God who initiates it. It is God who holds it. It is God who accomplishes it. It is God who sustains it. This is the largest story in the book of Judges. Why? So that you will know salvation belongs to our God. It can't belong to anybody else. Your salvation is not based on you and your works. Now there is an ethic to the gospel of Christ. But your salvation is found and bound in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. So we trust him fully. This story is given to show us that salvation belongs to our God. Gideon took the 300. He's about ready to attack. The enemy's in the valley. But he's still apprehensive. He's still a bit squeamish. And the Lord comes to him and says, look, if you're still afraid, go down and listen to what they say in the camp. Their words will encourage you, I promise. So that night, he took his biggest, strongest bodyguard, his servant. They went down under the cover of night, and they came across this conversation. It was two soldiers in the Midianite army. The one soldier said, I had a dream last night. The dream was that a large, round barley loaf came rolling in to camp. That big piece of bread hit the tent with such force that it collapsed. The other friend said, I know exactly what that means. I know how to interpret that dream. Well, what is it? That can only mean one thing. It means that Gideon is drawing his sword against the Midianites. Now, beloved, if I don't know why God prefers lappers over kneelers, I can promise you I don't have a clue as to how that interpretation came from that dream. Are you kidding me? A stale piece of bread comes rolling into town, knocks into a tent, makes it collapse, and the person who hears it says, well, that can only mean one thing. Gideon's sword is coming against us. How does that mean that? But it was enough for Gideon. The only explanation I have is that God orchestrated it. God is the main character of the story. God's always the main character of the story. God is the one who's orchestrating everything. So Gideon hears this, and in chapter 7, verse 15, once he hears it, he worships God. He comes back to camp. Boy, is he rejuvenated. He's ready to go. He's ready to take the world by the tail. He says, guys, watch me. Follow me. Do as I do. He divided the 303 companies of 100. He gave them a trumpet, a jar, and a lit torch. He said, we're going to go to the edge of camp about midnight after they change guards. And I am going to blow the trumpet, smash the jar, raise the lit torch, and then you do the same thing that I do. 
And we're going to say, for God and for Gideon. They said, that's the plan? Yes, that's the plan. That's how we're going to attack 135,000. That's how we're going to attack 135,000. Trust me on this one. We're going to do it. About midnight they go. They surround the camp. The three groups of hundreds are right around. Gideon stands up. He blows the trumpet. He smashes the jar. He raises the lit torch. Everybody else does the same thing. The Midianites are jolted from their slumber. There's so much confusion and chaos. They draw their swords against themselves. And on that night, 120,000 of the Midianites died. And Gideon never raised his sword. All he had was a trumpet and a jar and a lit torch. And God gave him the victory. Here's the third takeaway. God is the one who places faith in you. And God is the one who draws faith out of you. In this story, God continually is drawing faith out of Gideon. Who's he doing that for? It's not for God. God knows you are my mighty warrior. He pulls it out for Gideon's sake. So that Gideon can see, I can trust God. The faith in Jesus Christ that's in your heart, it's a gift from God. It is God who opened your eyes into his salvation and you responded willfully and wholeheartedly. But that gift of salvation is a gift from heaven. And I don't know about you, but throughout my lifetime, there are experiences, there are failures, there are There's fear, there's struggles, there's pain, there's agony. And through it all, God is pulling his faith out of me. Not, not, Not so that God can know I have faith, but so that I can know I have faith. Because faith is like a muscle. The more I exercise it, the bigger it grows. And so faith is drawn out of you. It was Warren Wiersbe who said, in this story, God's in the business of changing question marks into exclamation points. It's true for Gideon, it's true for me, it's also true for you. At the beginning in chapter 6, Gideon has questions. Why has God abandoned us? Question mark. Am I not from the smallest clan of Manasseh? Question mark. Am I not the weakest in my family? Question mark. By the time you get to the end of the story, Watch me, exclamation point. Follow me, exclamation point. Do as I do, exclamation point. There may be someone in here and your life is full of questions. God takes the question mark and makes it an exclamation point. Why am I here, question mark? I am here to glorify God and enjoy him forever, exclamation point. Does God love me? Question mark. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Exclamation point. Can God forgive me for all that I've done? Question mark. Therefore there is now no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. Exclamation point. Is Jesus the only way to heaven? Question mark. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, exclamation point. 
We fill our minds with questions and God changes the questions into exclamation points for he plants faith inside of us and he pulls faith out of us. Let me also say this, sometimes in life you might be outnumbered, but you are never outmatched. In this story, Gideon is outnumbered on every side. In your life, you may be outnumbered on every side with problems and scenarios and stress and situations, and you're overwhelmed with everything. You look around you, you look up, you look down, and you have everything crashing at you at one time. And I want to tell you, you might be outnumbered, but if you have Christ, you're never outmatched. And Gideon became a mighty warrior only because he first became a magnificent worshiper. It wasn't until chapter 7, verse 15, that everything switched. He went down, he heard the dream, the interpretation. It was a little weird for me, but he heard the dream, he heard the interpretation. It resonated with him, and he worshiped God. He became a magnificent worshiper in verse 15. And then later in the chapter, he becomes that mighty warrior when he says, with exclamation points, watch me, follow me, do as I do, and God gave the victory. This morning, I just came to tell you, have faith in God. He's on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches over his own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Have you ever had a Gideon moment? You felt weak. You felt useless. You felt overwhelmed by the culture that was pressing into you. You find yourself in a wine press. Have you ever had a Gideon moment? And God shows up. And God speaks to you. And God calls you, not by how you feel in that moment, but God calls you who you are, who you will be, almighty warrior. And it is God who gives you his salvation that will sustain you now and forevermore. And it is God who plants faith in you and draws faith out of you. Therefore, have faith in God. He'll never let you down. And this morning I wonder, is there anyone here in need of that salvation that only Christ can give? Today can be the day of your salvation. Today simply believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died on the cross for your sins that he took all the punishment that you deserved upon himself. His dead body was buried in a tomb and on the third day he was raised from the dead. If you trust that, you'll go from death unto life. But maybe you're here and you are a believer, but you have far fewer exclamation points and a whole lot more question marks in your life. Today, bring all the question marks and place them at the altar of God. Maybe you need to pray for yourself. Maybe you need to pray for somebody else. Maybe it's a family member or a friend. Maybe you need to come and join the church. Whatever it is that the Lord is asking you to do, do it right now in this very moment. Have faith in our God. He cannot fail. He must prevail. So have faith in God. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. We ask for you to help us guide us, help us to respond in obedience to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.